Get ready for unique, rare, and little-known treasures from the golden age of radio. You're listening to The Amazing World of Radio with Adam Graham. Welcome to The Amazing World of Radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Well, our Men of a Thousand Voices series continues, and we have another episode starring Paul Fries. This one's an episode of The Player, and the title is Solo Fight. Slim Merritt sat in the front seat of the tiny light airplane as student number 10 for the day tried his best to make just one decent landing. Slim, as usual, was abusive. Get your wings level. Cut your throttle. These things won't land at cruising speed. Ten feet off the ground, the tiny plane leveled off raggedly and dropped into a hard landing. As it stopped rolling, Slim looked around at his protege. Poor kid almost had tears in his eyes. He was sure he would never be able to fly. Slim uncoiled his long legs and swung them over the side. I guess you better take her on alone, kid. I'm getting in your hair. Try to remember all I told you, and if you get in trouble, just go around again. You'll be all right. Slim was about to solo another student. And so begins another play as told by the player, America's most versatile actor, Mr. Paul Fries, who will continue after a brief message from your announcer. your star, the player, Mr. Paul Fries. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is The Player, welcoming you to our presentation of Solo Flight. Slim stepped back from the runway as the plane took off. He watched the kid lift the tail a little too fast, saw him stall the ship off just before it was ready to fly. Watched him climb away to the left instead of holding a straight line off the end of the runway. That was all right. No student ever remembers the fine points he'd been taught during the excitement of his first solo. Slim kept a watchful eye on the kid's turns, on his pattern as he circled the field and his approach. The motor slowed to idling and the tiny ship was gliding in for a landing. It was gliding fast, but Slim had hammered home the fact that a slow glide is often the last glide for a pilot. 
The kid leveled out pretty well. Didn't quite get the tail down before he touched, but he recovered nicely and rolled to a stop. Wasn't good, but it wasn't bad either. Slim smiled slightly as he walked toward the ship. He'd soloed another student, and now he could start making the kid into a pilot. Ten minutes later, Slim was sitting in the big canvas chair in front of his tiny airport office listening to Major Denning. Slim, this is the best offer we can make. If I were you, I'd take it. You're too good a pilot to be puttering around an airport with a lot of hammer-headed students. Slim shaded his eyes as he leaned back in his chair. One of his students was up there doing lazy aids and jerking the ship around a little too much to suit him. He spoke almost absent-mindedly to the man beside him. Major, I appreciate you making the offer. I admit it's a lot of money, but I can't take it. I could handle the test work for you all right, but you can get somebody else to do it. I got a bunch of boys here I'm trying to make into pilots. Me, that's a lot more important than Amalgamated's new bomber. Oh, if you aren't stubborn. You mean you'd rather sit here with your putt-putt airplanes and teach a bunch of kids to get up and down again than fly the greatest ship ever to come out of a factory? Slim made a mental note to ride with that student when he came down. He was pretty far off on his timing. No, Major, I can't see it your way. I think pilots are just as important to national defense as airplanes. Now, if you'll pardon me, I'm going for an airplane ride. Slim picked up the telephone in his office the next morning to find one of his old students on the other end of the wire. Hello, Slim? Yeah? What can I do for you? Slim, this is Bob Cook. Hey, uh, I got a problem. That so? What's trouble? Still carry bottom rudder in your steep turns? No, Slim. <laughs> you knocked that out of me years ago. Look, uh, I just been offered the job of testing Amalgamated's new bomber. Did you hear that? Yeah. That's swell, Bob. Look, I haven't flown around with you for a long time. Maybe you better drop around this afternoon. We'll take the big ship up for a while, huh? That's just what I want. Okay, see you later. Two hours in the air told Slim all he wanted to know about Bob's flying. After all, Bob was an accomplished pilot with hundreds of hours. He was no longer a student. But Slim had soloed him, and to Slim, that was all the excuse for a check flight. It was Slim's theory that when you teach a man to fly, he's your responsibility from there on out. If he isn't a good pilot through all the rest of his days, that's the instructor's fault. And it's up to the instructor to keep a fatherly eye on his graduates. Bob took the job testing the amalgamated bomber, and Slim went back to riding around the field at 800 feet, scaring students into making good landings with liberal helpings of verbal abuse. Slim heard a few reports through the airport grapevine from time to time. Bob was doing all right. During this time, Slim was busy enough with his students, and he didn't go near the amalgamated plant. But one morning, he canceled all his appointments, cranked up one of the putt-putts, and hopped over to the big municipal airport where amalgamated was located. As he walked toward the office, he saw Major Denning. Hello there, Slim. What brings you over here? I don't know, Major. Just thought you might be doing dives on that new bomber today. Thought I'd like to see Bob strut his stuff. Well, I don't know where you're getting your information, Slim, but Bob's going to do the big dive today. That's what I thought. I'll just stand around and see how he gets along, if you don't mind. Major hesitated for a moment. Slim, Bob's a good pilot. He's done a great job so far, but frankly, I'm worried about this dive today. Look, uh... Why don't you take over and do it for us, huh? 
Slim shook his head and smiled, the same kind of smile that lit his face after a new student soloed. No, Major. I checked Bob out before he took this job, and I think he can handle it. If I've got enough confidence in a student of mine to turn him loose, I've got to leave him alone and let him fly the airplane. It's a reflection on me if I have to step in and take over. The Major shrugged his shoulder and took Slim's arm. Well, that's good enough for me, Slim. Come on up in the flight tower. We can listen to Bob on the radio while we're washing. They climbed up into the control tower and Slim looked down at the field below. The slim, graceful bomber was idling on the line with mechanics and officials clustered around it. Slim watched as Bob came out of the operations office dressed in his heavy flying suit and saw him strap on his chute and climb in. The muted roar of 2,000 horsepower floated up to him as Bob blasted the tail of the bomber around and taxied out to the head of the runway. He listened to the tower operator as he flipped on his transmitter and called the ship. Experimental 47, wind southeast 10, use a diagonal runway. Traffic will be cleared for you over the lake north of the field. Clear for takeoff? Static roared in the loudspeaker for a moment and then Bob's voice cut in. 47 to Amalgamated Tower, Wilco. Tersely, Bob signaled that he'd received the message and would comply. Then the air was filled with sound as he lifted the bomber off the ground. Slim watched as the bomber slid away into the haze, climbing for altitude. He listened for Bob's first report and kept his hands tightly clenched in his pockets. On his face was that same half-smile. He'd trained himself for years never to show how he felt. Nothing is worse for student morale than an instructor who shows when he's nervous. Suddenly, the loudspeaker blasted again. 47 to the tower. Cruising at 10,000. Manifold pressure 29. Airspeed 360. Head temperatures. Two engineers beside Slim copied down Bob's reports as he radioed them in. Major Denning paced up and down the narrow railed platform worrying, and Bob went on climbing for altitude. Nothing had been heard from the ship for some time. Slim looked off to the north toward the lake. The control tower had warned all planes away from the area where Bob was to pull out of his dive. Everything was set. 47, the tower. Trim for diving. Six miles northeast from the field at 30,000 feet. Course 270. Roger. The tower operator reached for his mic at the word Roger, which signified the end of the message. Tower to 47. Clear for tests. Please report. Slim looked up. He knew he wouldn't be able to see the ship for a while, but Bob would be reporting by radio on the way down. The sound of the ship could be heard in the loudspeaker as Bob peeled off and started down, and Slim listened to the engine as it started to wind up and to Bob's terse reports. 17, 29, 8. Static snapped and roared as the whine of the diving ship rose to a higher pitch and the group in the control tower jumped to their feet. Then Bob's voice cut in again, strained and worried. The stabilizer slip. Pressure's building. The ship's going over on its back. Slim looked quickly at the sky. The ship was a tiny speck, but growing larger. There was no time to lose. He jumped for the microphone, snatching it from the tower operator. Bob. Bob, it's Slim. Roll it, boy. Slow roll. And take it easy. They all held their breath as the roaring sound increased. They saw the ship do a slow half-roll, still pointed down. They heard the motor cut as Bob pulled the throttle back. Stick forward, Bob. Pull out inverted. No one breathed as the group waited to see if the ship would take that strain. 
Bob eased it out upside down until he was flying normally again, but inverted. Then he rolled back right side up and started his glide for a landing. Major Denning was the first to speak. Great work, Slim. You saved Bob's life and you saved the ship that our government needs. Slim was smiling again. That easy smile of his. That's all right, Major. I always did believe in looking out for my students, even after they solo. <laughs> I guess I just gave Bob another lesson. And so ends another story by The Players, starring your one-man theater, Paul Fries, who portrays all of the parts. Mr. Fries will return in just a moment after a few words from your announcer. was written by Paul West and produced by Sam Kerner with music composed and performed by Rami Idris. Special effects by Fred Cole. Your announcer was Gary Goodwin. Won't you join us again when we present another exciting story for your entertainment? This is The Player, Paul Fries saying goodbye. Until next, we meet. some really superb sound effects. A series like The Player, you really need the effects to be there on an episode like this, and uh, they were just superb for all of the flight scenes. And I also thought Slim was a likable character. That said, this is a tough episode to really evaluate. The key to most stories the biggest requirement is something called conflict. 
As I listened to the episode, I found myself kind of imagining, okay, there has got to be some conflict here. Slim has to have some sort of doubt. And we're going to find out as the story comes through that Slim has doubts or he has mixed feelings about one of his ex-students taking this job. But there's part of him that really wants the job. And it's... No. I mean, prior to the end point where things go wrong on the plane, conflict is really minimal. The Major essentially offers Slim the chance to do the test flight twice, and Slim declines. End of conflict. What the story really does seem to be is a portrait of a man who's not just a flight instructor, but a man for whom that's his life calling. Which I think is somewhat rare. You know, there are a lot of people who teach, who uh, instruct in one way or another. And I'm talking a wide range of people. I'm talking school teachers and drill sergeants and trainers at work, Sunday school teachers, college professors. And you have all types. There are some bad ones. The guy who doesn't care much or the person who just loves the sound of their own voice. I think we've all run into that. But there are a lot of very competent, dedicated folks who do the job, who want to do a good job and help people understand the material. For most people, they do a very good job. But many people... Uh, they would be happy doing something else. They might, you know, get promoted to being a trainer. They'd be more than happy to take a pay raise and go and be a, a supervisor or work their way up into the executive suite. And let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with that. And we need those sort of people, you know, training and instructing. I think there's also a certain type of person for whom it's a calling. And they're not going to be happy if they're doing anything else. I knew a gentleman who was a very good trainer and worked himself into a supervisor position. But before you knew it, he'd worked himself back into being a trainer. Because that's what made him happy, explaining things and helping bring people on board. Do you get that picture with Slim? Slim is a flight instructor. And he's a flight instructor all the time. And you pick that up from the narration, where by habit, by temperament, the way that he approaches a situation is to wear this poker face because he knows he has to be calm for his students. Being an instructor is who he is. And he knows that. And he's at peace with that. And he's not seeking more money or more prominence or more recognition to do something that doesn't suit who he is. He is absolutely comfortable with that fact. The question, though, <laughs> is there an actual story there? And I'll leave that, I guess, to the writing experts. Listener comments and feedback now. We got a comment on the very first episode we played with Paul Freeze. And this comes from Terrence over on YouTube, and he writes, his narrative voice kind of sounds like Orson Welles. 
Uh, well, thanks for the comment, Terrence, and I'd agree it definitely sounds very authoritative, although I don't know if I'd compare it to Wells as much as I would compare it to William Conrad. Now, it's not Freeze's natural speaking voice, but it really is meant to be just this voice of authority, which I, I think you could say that most narrators on adult programs really tried to establish. And on most kid programs, you might find somewhere you've got a more whimsical sounding narrator voice. But I think particularly in this era, there was just a sense that you, the narrator, uh, particularly if the narrator telling you stuff and he's essentially an omniscient narrator it's going it, that voice is going to want to be really authoritative and i think that's what freeze was going for and it does come across really well uh, like i said to me a little bit reminds me a little bit more of william conrad but i can kind of see orson wells a bit uh, thanks so much for the comment, Terrence. And now, a programming note. The next episode is going to be the 200th episode of The Amazing World of Radio, and that's going to be a double episode. And we'll have uh, a special uh, instructions in terms of when it will be played. Uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast, this will be sent out on Sunday, July 24th, and will feature one program with Frank Graham and one program with Paul Fries. So there will be no episode on the 20th. Now, if you're listening to this on YouTube, and for Amazing World of Radio, YouTube and the podcast are essentially releasing the same day for Amazing World of Radio, Great Detectives is another matter. But on YouTube, again, there will not be an episode on the 20th, but because we have a Superman playing on Sundays, the Amazing World of Radio will return on the 27th. And then we'll all be back to being synchronized starting on August 3rd. So again, it's going to be fun. 200th episode, July the 24th on the podcast, July the 27th on YouTube. In the meantime, though, if you do have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.